first of all, a day of recollection <coughs> is precisely what the word recollection indicates. It's meant to be able to collect your thoughts, <coughs> especially your thoughts about our ultimate purpose in being here. We need uh, to orient ourselves to a little bit of spiritual orienteering today and uh, keep in mind the ultimate purpose <coughs> of every day of our lives, the fact that God has given us these days to accomplish something for Him. And uh, so collecting our thoughts about that is very important. We hear today about people who are preppers and they're prepping for all kinds of disasters and um, but often, unfortunately, we get the impression that preppers may be so obsessed by preparing for tomorrow or next week or next month what might happen, they do not all necessarily prepare for the one thing that definitely will happen, and that is the call from God to account for the time he's given us. And so the, the ultimate preppers, really, the, the real preppers are those who keep in mind the point that there will be a moment that comes and God calls them as it were, to stand before him and to uh, have an account of their lives. It just came out recently that uh, science has somewhat verified that uh, it is a common experience that people do uh, have the events of their lives play out in their minds as they're dying. It's an old saying that the your entire life flashes before your eyes when you're when you're going through the dying process, and uh, it's curious to find that uh, there are now scientists who say that they've empirically verified this through uh, research that they've done. But it's been common wisdom for a long time, and this is a very important grace from God that we are able to highlight things, see things of our lives, sort of sum up our lives, even as we are uh, in our last moments of consciousness, because it's a moment of grace. And God gives us the grace to respond to the events of our lives, the decisions that we made, in order to repent of our sins, make acts of adoration of Him, and to give, give thanks to Him, too. All of these things should be going through our minds, not just the moment that we're dying, though. They should be going through our minds every single day. So if we really want to be real preppers, that is, in the best sense of the term, we have to think in terms of what will happen at some point in the future, but it is not an uncertainty, but it is a certainty. And that is what we have to go to the God who made us and uh, answer for him what we've done with that image of God which he created in us the day we were conceived. Now we do have some ladies here on site who are under uh, taking a, uh, I think a book, book study, book club meeting. And so we'll still easily avoid them. Uh, I'm very glad that they're doing what they're doing and appreciate that, appreciate they're here now. But of course in the day of recollection, uh, in order to recollect uh, well, we need to, to more or less keep to ourselves, at least maintain an interior silence. And in this regard, uh, St. Joseph is a 
very good example. So I ask you to resemble St. Joseph in his silence today, that interior silence. But it's not meant to be really silent. It's supposed to be silent to the things of the world, the cares and the troubles and the occupations of the world. <clears throat> should be put on the back burner right now. And uh, that relationship with Almighty God should come to the forefront in your mind. And uh, you should be involved in a kind of colloquy with our Lord throughout the next few hours of your life. It's a short time, um, but a significant time insofar as it shows it can be done. And um, if you were given an audience with Almighty God, uh, for uh, an hour, for half an hour, for a minute, uh, you would consider yourself highly blessed if God would admit you to his, to his presence for the sake uh, of having a conversation with you, blessing you with a conversation with him. Well, this, this colloquy is precisely that. Um, the men who have been reading the uh, Divine Intimacy have these colloquies given. They are somebody else's words, though. <clears throat> they are not meant to substitute for your own words and your own conversation. So uh, ask our Lord for that ability during this time, this brief time, to actually turn your hearts and your minds to God in prayer. But our Lord said pray always, and so our thoughts and our minds should always be filled with the, uh, the idea that what we do, we do for God, even as we are very busy and occupied with the things of the world, we should always have uh, over overriding all of that, or overshadowing it all, I should say. Better yet, perhaps, to be better to say, illuminating all that we do. That sense that what we're doing, we're doing for God's sake. We're doing for His love. And um, so I'd ask you to make that the case here today. Now, as you see, we um, have a conference here until 10.45. And uh, then at 10.50, we have Stations of the Cross in the Church. And that uh, then will take us to 11.30 or so. Uh, that should actually perhaps give us a few extra minutes as well. Um, and then at 11.40, uh, the second conference here in Bishop Mendes Hall, and then uh, reflection, colloquy in church, and then lunch. So you see that on your schedule. And uh, we expect that by the, uh, 2 o'clock this afternoon, you'll be able to be on your way like to attend to the things of this world, but always with the interior eye of the mind and the heart toward the things of the next world, toward God. Now, um, with regard to the topic for the uh, conferences today, I wanted to take a, a look at St. Joseph, uh, St. Joseph's life, the example he set, take a look at uh, St. Patrick and his life and St. Uh, Isidore the farmer and uh, what he has to teach us. And all of these in light of what we have to learn uh, from them regarding our duties to the Sacred Heart of Jesus. So uh, really all of this is referred to that. It's referred to our Lord's own Sacred Heart. Now you know that the Sacred Heart of our Lord was a devotion that uh, is very ancient, and yet it did not really come to the foreground until later on in the church's history. Um, there are those who would say that the devotion to our Lord's Sacred Heart began with the Gospels, and rightly so, 
the account of the Passion given by St. John talks about the spear opening the heart of Jesus, and from that open heart, as from a vessel, there poured out the blood and the water, the blood serum, which we see actually graphically pictured on the shroud. Um, we see a picture of the wound of the heart of our Lord. We see even the mottled blood stain on the shroud. And on the shroud itself, you have only the picture of the wound, but you have the actual blood of the wound that flowed from the wound on the shroud. And it is, it is indeed mottled, as it were, mixed with water or the clear blood serum. St. Augustine had a devotion to the heart of Jesus. And uh, he spoke of that heart as being the source of the church. He spoke years, actually, back in the year 400 or so. St. Augustine was writing to us today about the church being born from the heart of Jesus, coming from his open side on the cross, even as uh, Eve, the bride of Adam, was taken from his side as he slept in the Garden of Eden. <clears throat> so our Lord slept on the cross, St. Augustine said. And when his heart was opened by the spear that we thrust into his side by our sins, what flowed out was blood and water. St. Augustine said that actually represented the church itself in her great sacraments of baptism and the Holy Eucharist. So he says that the, the church was born from the side of Christ by this great act of Christ's love, the outpouring of his divine heart. Sometimes you'll see, see statues of St. Augustine holding a heart in his hand, and it is the Sacred Heart of Jesus. Uh, so we need to recall that the devotion to the Sacred Heart goes back a very, very long time in the Church. Um, but it was only developed slowly. Uh, one thing you'll notice, that there are certain devotions that appear in the Church at certain times, and this is by God's design. Uh, he is using these various devotions to appeal to us in various ways and to provide certain needs to the faithful. And those needs are accentuated from one time to another depending on the circumstances in which they live. You, you and I are here now, living in the world as it is today, living in the church as it is today, and so there are specific needs we have. God has placed us here to accomplish something for him here and now no accident that we are here now. God willed us here now, each and every one of us, to accomplish something for his life, for his sake. And so he's going to provide the graces, and he, divide, he provides the devotions we need to have, to seek those graces in those devotions. And of course, today we find the devotion to the Sacred Heart has come to the foreground, so much so that the enemies of Christ have tried to, to actually um, disarm, uh, kind of, in a sense, bury that devotion to the Sacred Heart under other supposed devotions which are not the same and do not convey the same, well, meaning and the same grace, actually. We'll talk about that a bit later. But this devotion to our Lord's Sacred Heart comes to us uh, very beautifully through the centuries, developing as it does. And, um, our Lord even spoke to St. Gertrude and said that it was a devotion that was reserved for the latter times. Well, St. Gertrude lived in the Middle Ages, as you know. So we might consider ourselves to be living in those latter times now, if he refers to that devotion being reserved 
to her time and the time after her. In any case, the devotion is here, and we should find ourselves dedicated to our Lord Sacred Heart. In fact, um, we, in the last conference, we'll go through the, briefly through the history of the Church's devotion to the Sacred Heart, and how it affects us today, how it affects the priest, even at the altar. Uh, and we'll talk a little bit about the dedication of the universe to the Sacred Heart of Jesus, as a prelude to the dedication of the Sacred Heart to the, uh, of the world, to the Immaculate Heart of Mary, I should say, and ultimately to the call for the consecration of Russia to Mary's Immaculate Heart of Fatima. But all of this does involve St. Joseph. It involves St. Joseph because he was the one who was called to be, well, you might say, the foster father of the Sacred Heart of Jesus. There is a very beautiful tribute to St. Joseph paid by a saint called St. Bernardine of Siena. St. Bernardine of Siena was a Franciscan, an observant Franciscan who lived from 1380 to 1444. So his time wasn't that far off from that of St. Gertrude herself. And St. Bernadine of Siena wrote a beautiful sermon about St. Joseph. He wasn't the first to write about it. In the West, though, he's one of, one of the few because the devotion to St. Joseph as the foster father of Jesus as the spouse of the Blessed Mother, as the protector of the Universal Church, that devotion developed very quickly and very early in the Church in the East. We may call it the Greek Church. But the devotion to St. Joseph came along very slowly here in the West. And only in these uh, Middle Ages, the High Middle Ages, or even beyond that slightly, did the devotion to St. Joseph really become widely widely spread among the Catholics in the West. There are reasons for that. <clears throat> Actually, the introduction to the sermon on St. Joseph by St. Bernadius of Siena addresses that question of why the devotion to St. Joseph in the West came, developed so slowly. But then, when it finally did develop, it became a very powerful devotion. Um, it went from, uh, in a matter of a few centuries, being rather rare here in the West to being almost universal. Men like St. Bernadine of Siena uh, had a great deal to do with this. Also, uh, there were Carmelites and Benedictines who brought that devotion from the East to the West. Uh, giants of spirituality, they're called. St. Bernard of Clairvaux, for example, and Hugh of St. Victor. Uh, brought, brought a devotion to St. Joseph. But perhaps this, this sermon given by St. Bernadine of Siena uh, was a great, great uh, impetus for the growth of devotion to St. Joseph here in the West. Uh, it's called the Sermon on St. Joseph, Spouse of the Blessed Virgin. And he actually, uh, the, the sermon is divided into various articles. It's, it's kind of a theological study of St. Joseph and his place in the life of Jesus our Lord, his foster son, in the life of the Blessed Mother, in the life of the Church itself. And St. Bernard of Siena, I'm not going to give the whole sermon, but I would like to read some of it to you, especially toward the end. 
St. Bernard talks about uh, God giving to St. Joseph a triple grace, he calls it, a triple grace, a threefold grace. And the grace is under the general heading of the grace of intimacy. St. Joseph was given the grace of intimacy, he says. And St. Bernard of Siena divides that into three forms. He says, St. Joseph received the grace of virginal intimacy. He received the grace of divine intimacy. And he, re he received the grace of special intimacy. Uh, you're familiar, of course, with the what he would refer to as the virginal intimacy of St. Joseph with our Blessed Lady. And how he was given such well, intimate access to her. Um, St. Bernadine of Siena talks about the conundrums that St. Joseph had to face, that he was given what seemed to be uh, dilemmas, dilemma of not knowing what to do. Here's St. Joseph, in his own right, was called upon to be very flexible, as it were, and very responsive to the grace of God. There are others who map out the course, chart out their plans, and and St. Joseph was not in a position to do that. Why? Because God was calling upon him to exercise a very, very special virtue that is an absolute responsiveness to the grace of God and an absolute trust in him. St. Joseph called upon, as St. Bernadine says here, to know what to do in a situation which, seemed to, which puzzled him greatly, for which he had no explanation. Our Lady was with child, Mary of Nazareth, espoused to Joseph of Nazareth, was with child, and it was his child. This was a terrible conundrum for him, the kind of thing that would take a devout man and try him terribly. What should he do? He knew the law of Moses, he knew what the law required. At the same time, he realized that uh, Mary was a very holy soul, clearly, and he knew that she could not be guilty of a crime here. So this was a great mystery. In fact, he was facing a supernatural mystery here. St. Joseph was confronted with a supernatural mystery of the Incarnation and being met uh, by this supernatural power of God in becoming incarnate to the womb of Mary, something that is impossible for any human being to understand, impossible for any angel to comprehend, because that incarnation required infinite power. So St. Joseph was the first, actually, after Mary herself, he was the first to have to encounter this mystery, a supernatural mystery of the Son of God being consumed by the power of God immediately in the move of our Blessed Lady. So that all of the material substance for the body of our Lord was taken from the, well, as we read in the prayer, the blood of our Lady, we would say the DNA of our Lady. Um, and we see that uh, our Blessed Lord certainly resembled our Lady, physically, no doubt, but very much entirely, in fact, a man. And so he had the uh, outward appearance, surely, of a son of Mary, but he was genuinely the son of God. 
St. Joseph was the first to have to confront this, this great mystery of the Incarnation. The fact that he couldn't understand it, the fact he couldn't fathom it, the fact that he couldn't explain it, is understandable. The fact that he had to deal with it is mind-boggling in a sense that he had to make decisions on the basis of what not only he, but, but no other human being could possibly understand. The power of incarnation, Son of God. And so St. Joseph did what he always did. He prayed. He turned to God. He had to make a practical decision. And so the practical decision he made was basically, I wouldn't say a compromise between two facts. <clears throat> the fact that the Blessed Mother was indeed a mother and she had conceived a child <clears throat> without her husband fact he had to deal with, and in his own mind, no less factual, the virtue of Mary. Two things that he couldn't reconcile in his own mind, but he had to act upon both of them, and he chose to act upon both of them, by putting her away, as the law would require, but putting her away privately to protect her. So even there, St. Joseph was being the protector. The protector of Mary and the protector of her child. You know that St. Joseph received the answer that he was told directly by an angel in a dream that what Mary had conceived was of God, that she conceived by the power of God. <clears throat> the mystery of the Incarnation was revealed to St. Joseph. In the past, before St. Joseph, the prophets had prophesied all kinds of wonderful things about the coming Messiah and the, the maiden, the virgin mother, but None of them really was in the position of St. Joseph in having to have a practical decision made. It was in his power. It was in his hands. It was his responsibility to make this decision. Of all mankind, yeah, that's him. He's the one with that responsibility to make that decision. What do I do? What do I do? How do I do what is right under these circumstances? And uh, God gave him the grace to do it. He told him exactly uh, that this child, child of God, conceived of God. What that must have meant to St. Joseph, how astounding it must have been if we could enter into the mind and heart of St. Joseph when he was pondering these words of the angel. And still, they were out of the grasp of any human imagination, out of, any, out of the grasp of any human intellect, to fathom the meaning of these things. And yet, St. Joseph man of faith that he was, accepted that entirely. He took that word. He believed it was of God. He accepted it without any reservation. And so immediately he followed through. When he knew God's will, he immediately followed through. Um, when the angel Gabriel appeared to the Blessed Mother a few months before, <clears throat> uh, the Blessed Mother was wondering, well, how will this be done? Because I know not man. So our Blessed Lady had to ask the angel that question. And the angel answered, and when I really understood, of course, is, this is how it is to be done. She accepted it completely and answered, Behold the hand of the Lord, be it done unto me according to thy word. Well, St. Joseph answered no less completely the same way, as soon as he knew what it was, through an angel, what God's will was, that he should take Mary and that he himself, Joseph, would be in the position of raising this child. 
Now, you think about the position that this man was in here. I mean, he would be the foster father of the Son of God. He would be the mentor of God's own Son. He would be the instructor of God's own Son. He would teach God's Son to do things according to the flesh. He would teach God's own Son, Jesus. He would teach him how to work a saw and how to work a plane and how to join wood. He would teach him these things. He was in a position to be that intimately connected to our Lord. And this was the divine intimacy. Uh, the virginal intimacy St. Joseph had with Our Lady was matched by the divine intimacy he had with the Son of God as his own Son. And you know very well that even as St. Joseph was instructing the child Jesus in the carpenter's trade and so many other things that we physically have to learn how to do. So the Son of God was training St. Joseph too. He was teaching him and he was growing in virtue, even day by day. He was growing in virtue and the love for God to become what God wanted him to be, and that is the foster father of the Son of God here on earth, but in a special way, of course, the spouse of our blessed lady in heaven forever and the patron of the universal church of the world. And that was that special intimacy, St. Joseph's relationship with the church itself. That's what St. Bernardine of Siena says, that special intimacy, the third of those intimacies he speaks of, is the relationship that St. Joseph had now not only uh, as the mentor of the Son of God on earth, the mentor of the Savior, but actually now as mentor of the church. You know, we, we read of St. Joseph, well, so much. There's so much written about St. Joseph. Never has so much been written and said about someone who wrote nothing and said so little. And yet, there are volumes and volumes and volumes written about him. And millions of words of sermons are devoted to speaking of him. A man for whom there is no, no record in the sacred scripture of having said a word. And yet you know he did say, he did speak. St. Joseph did speak, obviously. But none of his words are recorded. And I think there's a reason why. I think St. Joseph's silence was part of his role. I think it actually goes along with his role as the foster father of the Son of God, that his silence betokened that subordination of his paternity of the soul underneath the, patern the real, genuine paternity of God, who had begotten his Son here on earth, not only as God, but now as man, in the womb of Our Lady. And uh, I think St. Joseph's silence betokens the majesty and the glory of his vocation, actually, uh, because he would not in any way put himself forward, and he wanted, and God wanted him to be, that basically a, a symbol and a representation of the Father himself, 
we do hear in the Gospels from time to time God the Father speaking as when he spoke from heaven at the baptism of Jesus, his son. This is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased, he said. And later on at the Transfiguration, there's St. Peter and St. John and St. Andrew present on the mountain. And uh, Peter began to make plans for everyone, as Peter tried to do. And they were worldly plans to set up tents for our Lord and Elias and Moses who appeared with our Lord, <clears throat> so that they could stay there. Again, Peter was given to thinking in very worldly terms. It was just before that that our Lord had rebuked him, calling him Satan, saying, Get behind me, Satan, because you mind not the things of God, but the things of men. And now, just perhaps a day or two later, they have transfiguration. St. Peter, acting true to form, starts talking about setting up tents at the transfiguration. But God the Father spoke from heaven, you might say, and overrode what he was saying silenced him by saying, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And here, God the Father added, hear him, listen to him. Words directed perhaps primarily to Peter, but certainly words directed to each and every one of us too. Hear him. And perhaps because of that voice of Almighty God speaking from heaven about his beloved son here on earth, and St. Joseph felt, in a sense, perhaps unworthy. And um, not only unworthy to be recorded in history, in his role here on earth, but perhaps God granted him that silence. We just heard one of our own gentlemen the other night <coughs> saying that if, if we, we had a record of um, St. Joseph saying something, it would simply be quotation marks with nothing in between. But there would be something in between, and that would be an exclamation point, because the silence of St. Joseph actually is an exclamation point. Without words, he spoke very powerfully. And if a picture is worth a thousand words, then St. Joseph's actions are worth a thousand pictures and billions of words, his silence spoke in a beautiful, eloquent way. That's very important for you and me to know. As men, Catholic men, as, as fathers, many of you, uh, we are not called to be silent. We are called to speak. And so St. Joseph has made himself known there are apparitions of St. Joseph that have happened in the world, as you know. True to form, in those apparitions, St. Joseph is often silent. <clears throat> At knock, St. Joseph was silent, standing near Our Lady, with a certain care and reverence and watchfulness for her, as he appeared there in Ireland back in the 1800s. <clears throat> and At Panama in 1917, in the the apparition of October, St. Joseph appeared also. And again, he did not speak, didn't have to. His very presence, the very look on his face, speaks volumes to those who know him and love him and understand the mind of this man. 
and his devotion to our Lord. Then I wanted to read this last part of St. Bernardine's of Siena's uh, treatment of St. Joseph, the, the intimacy, which he calls the special intimacy of Joseph, and that is his intimacy with the church. <clears throat> Here's what St. Bernardine of Siena said. <clears throat> he says that the special intimacy that St. Joseph had as a grace from God was this, that Christ, who was promised to the ancient fathers, was born of God to St. Joseph alone. That Jesus was born to Joseph, not in a physical sense, of course, according to the flesh, <clears throat> that he was entrusted to St. Joseph, that special intimacy. And here's what St. Bernadine says. He says, the third grace divinely given this holy man was that of special intimacy. If you consider him in connection with the whole Church of Christ, is he not the select and particular one through whom and under whom Christ was properly and becomingly introduced into the world? If, therefore, the entire Church is indebted to the Virgin Mother because it was made worthy to receive Christ through her, then indeed after her, it owes thanks and special reverence to Joseph. Joseph is the key of the Old Testament. I thought those words were rather interesting, St. Bernadine. Joseph is the key of the Old Testament, says, in whom the patriarchal and prophetical dignity attained to its promised fruit. It's as though these lines of the patriarchs and the prophets come together in the person of St. Joseph. He alone, furthermore, possessed corporally what the divine majesty had promised to the fathers. Justly, therefore, was he typified by the patriarch Joseph, who gave grain to the peoples, Genesis chapter 41. But the spouse of Mary excels the other Joseph, since more than merely giving the Egyptians the bread of corporal life, he, with much ingenuity, fed all the elect with the bread from heaven, which gives eternal life. Of course, the Church does draw together the ancient Joseph, the Joseph, the eleventh son of Jacob, the patriarch, <coughs> who, uh, sold into slavery by his brothers, became second in charge of all of Egypt, and the man who could interpret Pharaoh's dream to know that they had to save food because a terrible famine was coming, perhaps prophetic morning even today. And Joseph was the one who was responsible, the Joseph of old, uh, the son of Jacob, as the regent of the, of the Pharaoh in Egypt, was the one who was actually providentially putting aside the food that the entire world around him would need to survive in the years ahead. And when they came, when people came from afar looking for food, they came to Joseph. They went to that Joseph of old who had the custody of, of all of the food <clears throat> that would sustain life. That's how Joseph was reunited with his family when his brothers were sent by their father Jacob to seek food in the only place they could find it, and that was 
in the custody of Joseph in Egypt. And so this Joseph had in his custody, our Joseph, St. Joseph, had in his custody this living bread that came down from heaven. Uh, Joseph, our Joseph, came down <coughs> from Nazareth for the census, and there the Son of God was born in Bethlehem, the house of bread. How appropriate this was. And then that this Joseph would take the Son of God and his mother and flee into Egypt and find refuge there. Um, the, the parallels are beautiful, but they're divinely thought out. The plot, as it were, is divine, but also even the working out of the plot and all of its details is a divine plot. It's the divine plan of salvation here. And so we see this, this singular Joseph of whom St. Bernadette speaks so beautifully, <clears throat> as having custody over the very bread of heaven, the storehouse of, divine, of the divine bread to feed the souls of mankind. St. Bernadine continues, though we do not read in Scripture when St. Joseph died, yet it may be believed that he probably died before our Lord's Passion. For he would not have been absent from the Savior's cross had he been alive nor would it have been becoming for Christ from his cross to have placed Mary in another's care. Perhaps, too, Joseph died before Christ's baptism, since from that time onward no mention is made of him in the Gospel, except for the instance in which some found fault with Christ as the son of a mere carpenter, saying, Matthew 13, Is not this the carpenter's son? With which words they said dismissively, as though, well, who is he? Why should we regard him? Now, the place of Joseph in our particular, in our lives, is very important, is what I really want to get to. But I do think these words of St. Bernadine are important. Um, so when we reconvene here, I'm going to, to finish them, there's not much more to say. We do need to cover the schedule. I'm sorry I was a few minutes late this morning and things to attend to. But you see that we are called next to um, be in the chapel for stations at 10.50 and it is now 10.45. So let's pray and be on our way and I'll see you in the church for the stations. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. And Mary, seek of wisdom, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.